Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. When you lead from a base of expertise, your confidence and credibility are derived from your knowledge. People follow you as a result. However, when you take a stretch assignment and span outside of your comfort zone, leading requires a different approach, one of influence, inspiration, compromise, and courage. We are here to talk about how to take that next step and keep going. Now, here is your host, Wanda Wallace. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. And today we're going to talk about one of my favorite topics. One of the ones I get asked about all the time is conflict and challenging personalities. Actually, we're going to talk about all those events that make you just want to run away or to go and punch someone, hopefully not literally do either of those. My guest today, though, comes at this from a very different angle than what we typically see when we talk about this topic. And I think as a result, you're going to find has some amazing advice. So Diane Musho Hamilton is an award-winning professional mediator. She's an author, and she's a teacher of Zen meditation. And she's been a practitioner of meditation for more than 30 years and in the lineage as a lineage holder in the Soto Zen tradition. I must say, I don't know enough about Zen to actually know what that means, but it sounds very impressive. Um, she also <laughs> is a director of the Office of Alternative Dispute Resolution for the Utah Judiciary. So she's established mediation programs throughout the court system and won several prestigious awards for her work in that one. She's the executive director of Two Arrows Zen, which is in Utah, and she's the co-founder of the Integral Facilitator, a training program for personal development and advanced facilitator skills. And as if that's not enough, she's the author of Everything is Workable. The more recent book is The Zen of You and Me, and her most recent book coming out in 2020 is Compassionate Conversations, How to Speak and Listen from the Heart. I think you're going to find Diane has some amazing advice. Diane, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Wanda, and thank you for that introduction. Oh, it's a pleasure. Are you kidding? So I just have to ask, having made a joke about this, what does it mean to be in the lineage holder in the Soto Zen tradition? Well, Zen is... um a what you know one of the great religious traditions it yes. belongs to the Buddhist tradition in Asia and uh, the kind of Zen that I practice comes from Japan and there are two main streams one is called Soto Zen and the other is called Rinzai Zen so the practices are slightly different but both but basically sitting meditation is the, at the heart of Zen so I'm a transmitted teacher in the Zen lineage great now, that makes a lot of sense. I probably should have known that, having asked a lot of questions about Zen in Japan. All right. So, Diane, two, you come at this work from two very different places. One is your Zen practice and your teachings mm-hmm. in Zen, and the other is the mediation in the court systems. How did you come to do this work? Well, it's interesting, and I only kind of realized this somewhat recently, but that Meditation and mediation obviously have the same root word, and they're both about bringing things that are divided together. So when we sit down in meditation, we're harmonizing our body, breath, and mind so that it's one whole functioning system. And when we work as a mediator, we're bringing disputing parties who have conflicts or differences and who are sometimes estranged, we're bringing them together into an agreement, which creates wholeness for them. So it's really the kind of the same activity. Um, It's something that I became interested in when I was very young, and I had a very rambunctious and sometimes hot-headed family, and I was always, I guess I was 
one of those peacemaker type kids, although I'm also a little hot-headed myself, but I always wanted to find ways to bring people together. So I started studying uh, approaches to conflict resolution when I was really young and have been doing it for many years now, probably 40, I guess. So, Great. Great. Well, we need you. I say to almost every client that I work with at a cultural level, the company that can figure out how to have conflict, constructive conflict, to work their way through disagreements um, productively is the company Mm -hmm. that's going to win. Because I just think that skill is so underutilized and unknown in the corporate world that I interact with. But let me back up a second. Where is, are we getting worse? I mean, is conflict getting more? And let me, before I say that, let me back up and say, oftentimes with my clients, I say conflict. They think I mean you've gotten to the place where you're having a literal physical fight. I don't mean that. What I mean by conflict is when two people have two opposing points of view and both of them feel strongly about their position. At least that's my definition. But Diane, what's your experience? Is Where is all of this conflict coming from? And is it increased or what's happening? Well, I mean, reality itself is, you know, a very dynamic a uh, situation with lots of clashing forces, whether it's weather or meteors or volcanoes. or it, We live in a very dynamic world, and in our evolutionary history, human beings have also needed to survive, and we were predators early on. So there's, it's sort of built into the system. But I think the good news is that there is some research um, that by a uh, researcher named Steven Pinker that, that looks at violence and wars on the planet and how they've evolved. And he's, he's basically asserting that there, there is less violence now on the planet between human beings than ever before. Um, but we are all pretty conditioned to, well, we have a, an old brain that has the fight-or-flight system, so many of us are conditioned to uh, respond to conflict in particular ways. And we are also trained to be quite competitive. So lots of times, even though the conflict might not be on the surface, there is a kind of jockeying positioning, you know, within the office or in our legal settings or, you know, what, it, what we just tend to be rewarded for winning. So it's hard in some ways to overcome that. I think the other piece of good news is that when you look at human development, that what you see is people who tend to grow and learn throughout their life tend to outgrow outmoded styles of conflict. So we seem to be getting better collectively, and we also seem to be getting better individually. But that doesn't mean that we still don't experience a lot of it and that we have to work on it. It's, um, I have to say it's hard to believe that we are actually reducing violence because it seems that the headline news is constantly here in the U.S. about one more killing after another Um, There's increasing violence and knifings in the UK, which doesn't have guns on the streets. It just feels like Mm -hmm. everywhere there's this sort of additional physical threat that I don't remember feeling before. But we're actually going down as as a world. That's what Stephen Stephen Pinker's research says. And I, I imagine there are people who may argue with that. But I think the other thing that's worth noting is that 
you know, we're, we're, we're experiencing lots of pressures that we didn't used to experience before when there were smaller numbers of us on the planet, when people were not as mobile, when uh, we didn't have these high levels of diversity. People lived in pretty homogenous style communities, so there's always been violence. But I think some of the pressures, including the pace at which we do things, the fact that we're constantly running, things have to be happening quickly. So in some ways, I think what you're getting at is true. There is a felt experience of the world being more unsafe. So yeah. that seems right. Yeah. One of my guests uh, several, a couple of years ago said, um, in, you know, a hundred years ago, maybe even 200 years ago, in your regular year, you might mm-hmm. encounter 200 people. Because you didn't right. travel very far, and the communities were relatively small. So 200 was sort of a normal amount. But today, yeah. in a modern urban environment, you encounter 200 people on the way to the office building, let alone what happens True. after that. So right. you're right that there's a lot more of us, and that means, therefore, a lot more diversity, and therefore, a lot mm-hmm. less harmony, and therefore, a lot more potential. So let's talk for a little bit about this fight-or-flight thing. You've okay. written about this. A fabulous article mm-hmm. in HBR I have to recommend to everybody. Um, but what happens, this fight, if I explain what's going on here, and then what do we do with it? Well, I'm, I'm uh, not a neuroscientist, but, the, but from what I understand from my reading about it is that we have a tri-brain. We have our old reptilian brain, the midbrain, which is called the mammalian brain, and then the prefrontal cortex, where the higher functions of the brain, like language, Reside. And so this very old part of the brain is a very efficient sensitive signaling system. So we have a, a gland called the amygdala right behind the eyes. And as soon as there's any sense of threat in the environment, the amygdala starts to fire and we start to secrete adrenaline, cortisol, and other stress hormones into the system. And most people who are listening know that as soon as these stress hormones start to drip, they're basically preparing us for defense and that our usual modes of defense are to run away, to fight, sometimes to freeze or, you know, to seek protection. And so when, what's interesting is that that makes total sense if you're, you know, the classic cliche, if you're pursued by a tiger, that makes total sense. But when you're in the office and somebody says something in a you know sideways to you and you feel a little bit of aggression in it that the brain is extremely sensitive to affronts to the ego as well so lots of times the fight or flight system literally gets stimulated by a comment or a remark or an interaction so that we're literally dealing with those age old um uh, hormones in our body that are making our limbs tremble, that are creating a feeling of nausea in our solar plexus. They're inclining us to grip our jaw and to um, clench our teeth and to grip our fists. And we don't, oftentimes we're, we're not even really aware. We tend to be, remain kind of focused on the mental content. But once you start to really practice with noticing this in your own body, you literally can learn how to recalibrate your nervous system. Now, I read somewhere that when those hormones start to drip, if nothing else goes on, it takes a full 18 minutes for them to clear out of the body. So what we can learn to do is to notice when we're triggered, as we say, and 
what the sensations of those stress hormones are, what the adrenaline feels like, and then we can start to pay attention to that and use the breath and a few other cues to literally calm ourselves down. Some people do it naturally, but most of us don't. Most of us respond in one of those defensive ways when that starts to happen. So 18 minutes to dissipate. Josh Freeman says... 18 minutes. If, mm-hmm. eight min, 18 minutes, right. Josh Freeman says that it's very fast, but if you start thinking about it, it can be years. When you start interpreting and going off on your own head and your own thoughts, it can be years to get yes. rid of those reactions. So yes. the feedback yeah, I, loop between the mind and the body is really strong. You know, so the thoughts will continue to feed it for sure. All right, so here I am sitting in a meeting. Somebody mm-hmm. has said something that I don't like, that to me mm-hmm. feels like an affront. It feels like an attack. Mm-hmm. And we would actually use those mm-hmm. words as if it were a physical attack on me when mm-hmm. it's just an attack on the ego. What am I supposed mm-hmm. to do to keep from saying the wrong thing, handling this in the wrong way at that moment? So the first thing is to notice the the sensation of defensiveness or of being triggered, you know, the the kind of sensation of anxiety. And it, it's different depending on who we are, what it, what it actually feels like. But to actually come into contact with those sensations that I was just talking about, it might be that you feel some heat in your along your neck, or you feel uh, your heart start to race, or your palms get sweaty. Those kinds of things start to happen. And the way to work with it, and it, you know, it takes a little bit of curiosity because we do tend to react to these comments and we react, we react to the body's response. So we have to get a little bit curious about it, remind ourselves that we might feel triggered or insulted in this moment, but that we want a, basically a good relationship. So a good little cognitive cue just to remind yourself that you want a good relationship. And then to kind of sit and, and just to kind of breathe and relax and watch those sensations start, start to change. You have to disconnect a little bit from the conversation because if you stay in the conversation, almost automatically it will be competitive. Now, if you're practiced, you can say, I notice that I'm feeling a little triggered right now, so I just want a moment to kind of calm myself a bit before we go on. But that would probably be in the context of more trusting relationships that you would actually share that. Otherwise, you might just calm yourself and then notice how it affects your thoughts because your thoughts become more aggressive and competitive when you're triggered and defensive, and they become more cooperative when you're not. So as soon as you start to recalibrate your nervous system by using the breath, emptying the mind, relaxing, you'll notice that it changes the way you interact and you create way less problems for yourself. Okay, so that's... Does that sound like too much? Wanda, is that too much to do? (laughs) Well, it sounds perfectly fine if I'm practiced at meditation, for example, or I'm practiced at Uh yoga, or even athletic training anymore teaches you some of those same sorts Mm -hmm. of skills. But if I haven't Mm -hmm. gotten skill in doing the breathing to just calm my body, it can be very Mm -hmm. difficult to do. And in a mm-hmm. meeting, when everybody's watching, that disconnecting mm-hmm. adds its own second trigger of, oh, my gosh, what are they going to think about me if I don't say something now? That's a really good point. Absolutely. It's a really good point, which is why in some of the more highly functioning, uh, what we find is that, that culture actually makes a big difference, that when you're working with groups of people, 
who are all practicing the same thing and you're not doing it by yourself, that you have way more success. So there was some research that was done at Google recently, and it had to do with effectiveness, team effectiveness, which you know as a coach, people are always looking at what makes a team effective. And one of the things that they discovered was what they called psychological safety, and that is that teams that were the most functional were teams that trusted each other, that believed that they could make mistakes, that were willing to expose their vulnerability in the room, and also could be more transparent with what they were really thinking. So doing it on your own when other people are watching and you expect to be criticized is really difficult. Doing it in a group of people who share your values and who are also practicing the same thing makes it way easier. Okay. All right. So that I can imagine that we could get it in our team environments if we've got colleagues and leaders who are willing to go on this journey with us. Getting it all the way through the culture, I'm maybe waiting for the rest of my lifetime for. But let's start small. Yeah. Small is okay. All right. So okay. let's go back, though, to a tactic. So you say, okay. I want to get curious. I want to recognize the physical mm-hmm. sensations in my body. So you said mm-hmm. things like heat on the neck. I notice it in kind of this burning sensation right in the mm-hmm. pit of my stomach. Right. It's just like, or like fire. Notice mm-hmm. that physical sensation in your body. Get curious about it and then just breathe and relax. But there's a particular mm-hmm. thing about breathing. Can you tell us how to do that? Yeah, for sure. So I think one one suggestion, too, that I might make, Wanda, is for people to start maybe working with it at home because I think home is an easier environment to really start to practice. Um, but when working with the breath, so the important thing is to turn your attention to the sensations, to let the mind quiet down so you stop talking to yourself and you just focus on the sensations and then engage the breath. Now, the breath will, if you engage it for a couple of minutes, it will help stop the production of more adrenaline and cortisol. And the way to work with the breath is to... Feel the inhalation and the exhalation, allowing the exhalation to be longer and for the breath to be rhythmic. So if the breath is rhythmic, in other words, the interval, the count on the in-breath, let's say one, two, three, four, then the out-breath, one, two, three, four, five, even two or three times if you repeat that same interval, the breath will help to calm the body. The second quality to pay attention to with the breath is the volume of breath. And what I mean by that is um, just like sipping through a straw. If the volume is thinner, it will also help to recalibrate the body. So breathing rhythmically and breathing you know, thinly and continuously is really important. It helps a lot. But, it, you know, again, it's hard to do that when you're in a meeting and people are talking and making decisions and lots of argument and questioning is going back and forth. And to just kind of work with your nervous system while that's happening is a really challenging environment. So that's why I would suggest maybe trying it at home and then moving it to the office. Okay. 
I would also say to people, how many times you sit in a meeting and things get said over and over and over again and no progress gets made. So if you check out for a minute or two, probably nothing dramatic is going to happen, <laughs> would be my guess. Though it's hard to tune out all those voices at the moment. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, so... Yeah. I want to focus on the exhale in that the exhale is a little bit longer than the inhale. I want to keep the rhythm going. So sort of four beats and five, four beats, inhale, five beats, exhale, kind of steady rhythm. And I want a thin breath like I'm sipping thinly through a straw. Not a deep. Thinly and continuously. (gasps) Yes, exactly. Exactly. Okay. And I can feel, believe it or not, Wanda, I can feel right now as I was describing how to do it, I felt a calm come into my body because I'm excited about the conversation, I'm excited about the content, and as I started to work with my breath, I sat down and I got very quiet. So I can feel the impact on me just in this moment. That's right. I can also hear it in your voice. Your voice changes yeah. quality as you begin to calm down. Mm-hmm. And I would say to everybody, I believe that that is one of the core components, one of the seven components I talk about in terms of executive presence in Gravitas, is that ability oh. to appear calm in the moment, even if you would like to strangle somebody. Not literally, please. <laughs> Metaphorically. I've been there. <laughs> we all have been. Absolutely. Totally. Okay. So if I'm preparing for um, a really tough day or a really tough meeting, is there anything else I need to do to take care of myself? Well, I think, yes, preparation is really, really important, um, as we know. I mean, all excellent high-performance athletes prepare and imagine in their own mind what the outcome is going to be and what a successful outcome will look like. So having a very clear intention in terms of what it is you want from the meeting, being clear about kind of the sequencing, um, step one, step two, step three. Include in your preparation the kind of relationship that you want to have with everyone, the kind of respect that you want to accord the others in the meeting. Maybe you want to also, as part of your preparation, use some reflective listening skills because when we take a moment to reflect what other people have said, even in a high-powered business meeting, it does create a little more room in the meeting and it also gives people the experience that they've been seen and that can really, uh, it just creates a, a greater level of, of uh, affinity and respect in the room. And so I think that preparation is really important, and it's always important that we think not only about ourselves in terms of preparation, but also about what others are wanting and needing and where there might be overlaps. I don't know if on your podcast you've ever referred to this classic negotiation book from the 80s, um, Getting to Yes, but Roger Fisher Mm -hmm. and Bill Urey, who wrote that book, they they talk about how important it is to prepare by thinking about what the other side wants and needs. And what are the ways in which that can get accomplished? So kind of building bridges in your own mind. Mm-hmm. So intention, preparation in terms of the relationship and the goals, and, and again, just what outcomes do you want from the meeting? Okay, great. Yeah, and that is the classic. And if you look at that book and getting to yes, there's some similarities. Even though this is not a formal negotiation in any sense, in ways it's a version of a negotiation, I guess we could say. Yeah, we're also negotiating informally. 
What about when I feel like there's a history with somebody Mm -hmm. that I'm now going to be interacting with in this room and they've done it to me before. You know how you get in your head. You get the script going in your head that they've done this to me Mm -hmm. before and I'm not letting them get away with it and this time I'm going to win and all that stuff your mind starts talking to you about. Any advice on that Mm -hmm. stuff? You know, I really, my my husband is a, a former judge and he's also a lawyer and when it comes to this particular issue, these long-term relationships, he's just extremely good at it. You know, I tend to be more reactive, and I also tend to um, worry a little bit that I'm going to repeat these patterns where he has a, he tends to study people and to find out what works for them, like what are the ways that, you know, we all know that there, there are some people who maybe just fall into what we might call an impossible category, and we mm-hmm. just do a lot of coping in order mm-hmm. to work with those folks. But there, but there are people who, you know, as you, you mentioned this earlier when you and I were talking, that there are people who are simply different than we are. Their style is different. They work with information differently. They, um, you know, a, there's a lot of emphasis on typologies these days, mm-hmm. even mm-hmm. within the business world. So things yeah. like the Enneagram or like the color system or Myers-Briggs. And one of the things that I think typologies teach us is that when we're curious about others, that we often can find ways to both empathize and uh, connect to them because we're willing to enter their world a little bit. So if it's a history of you know, a somewhat troublesome relationship. I, you know, watching my husband, what I would say is that he kind of tends to meet people freshly, but he doesn't let himself get pulled into old patterns at the same time. So it's sort of like this quality of bringing good faith forward and sort of staying away from the patterns that you know have been there. But it, it's quite a skill. How do you do it? I bet you're good at it. <laughs> I don't know if I'm any good at it. I was about to ask, can he bottle it and please sell that? I'd, I'd like to work on it. <laughs> I do. I mean, we're going to talk about this in the second segment. I do find that it's as you said before, qu- you said quiet the mind. Um, mm-hmm. I've just been reading the, um, oh, I've forgotten the title of the book now, The Tur- Turbulent Soul or Untethered Soul. The New York Times bestseller, oh, yeah, Dan Tether. So, yeah, I know that book. Mm-hmm. And they talk yeah. tons about how much our brain is, our mind is like constantly chattering at us. I find mm-hmm. we all make up a script. We all make up a story mm-hmm. about what's going mm-hmm. on with that person and about why they did it. And we have a whole hypothesis about how they're jealous or, you know, whatever else. Have to be in control, a whole bunch of stuff. And if we can ever get rid of that script, I think that's where you mm-hmm. meet somebody fresh. It's when I meet somebody with that script, I can't actually see where they're coming from. I can't even hear it. Mm-hmm. That's my trick, but mm-hmm. that's the extent yeah, of so my Yeah, so basically tricks. what I say, is, what I hear you saying is that when you've had a difficult history, that the best way is to encounter, is to be willing to suspend the story that you have about the person, to suspend that narrative that you have about they're always this way and this is what happens and... So you sort of suspend that story each time and come in in a new way and see what happens. And I will tell you also, it's a whole lot easier for me to do that with my coaching clients than it is necessarily for for me to do it. I think that's you almost always need a third party. to. Mm -hmm. Yeah, extremely challenging. 
All right. Well, Diane, let's take a break at this point. And then when we come back, I want to talk about how the sequencing of doing a conversation really should go and get some skills around practicing some of these things we've been talking about. So my guest today is Diane Musha Hamilton. She's a Zen meditation teacher, author, and also a professional mediator herself director of um, a whole bunch of things. I won't list all of them, but I will tell you the two books that we've been talking about is the first one is called Everything is Workable. And the second one is called The Zen of You and Me. And we'll be right back to talk about some skills. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. If you are interested in the business of rental equipment, be sure to check out Rental Equip Talk Radio with host Donald Charbonnet. We talk to some of the top names in the rental industry, as well as cover topics that include safety, training, fleet management, legal issues, and more. We'll also cover the history and future of the rental equipment industry. Rental Equip Talk Radio can be heard live every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Tune in to the soul of enterprise, business in the knowledge economy with co-hosts Ron Baker and Ed Kless. Ron and Ed will show you how to recognize that wealth is created by intellectual capital. It's all in the possibilities that we can create and that are created for us. These possibilities are destined to be discovered by human imagination and through the service of others, creating a brighter future for all of us. The Soul of Enterprise is heard live every Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel and simulcast at the same time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective. Plus, topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite hosts. It's just a click away at blog.voiceamerica.com. That's blog.voiceamerica.com. The Voice America Press Blog. All access, all the time. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Leading outside of your comfort zone is a delicate balance. You need new skills and new ways of working. To reach the program today, send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. That's wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back. With me today is Diane Musho Hamilton. The book we're talking about is The Zen of You and Me. Now, this last segment, if I can possibly um, summarize all of this one, is first off, in spite of all of our feelings, in many ways, our violence as a species seems to be going down, our violence in war. That's according to Steven Pinker's research. But at the same time, there's increased pressures that all of us are feeling. A lot of people, a lot more mobility, a lot more pace, and a lot more diversity that's going on. 
And we have an inbuilt, hardwired um, reptilian brain called the amygdala that releases stress hormones every time we have any sense of threat, including when those threats are just comments coming from somebody across the room that aren't going to really affect much of anything other than us in that moment. And the way to deal with that, the self-care of dealing with that is to first notice, just to get the sensation in your body about how your body is feeling. Get curious about that one. And then the second thing is to try to quiet your mind. And then the third thing is to sort of breathe and relax. And we've talked about how to breathe. To focus on the inhale and the exhale, keeping that in a rhythmic pace with the exhale being a little bit longer and at a steady pace and thin as in sipping thinly through a straw. Okay, so Diane, I now need to talk about skills. And the first thing I want to talk about is feelings. Talk to me about those, these feeling things that are happening at the same time. Okay, before I do that, I just want to commend you on what a good reflective listener you are because you just basically summarized the first part of our conversation really succinctly and you modeled what it's like to be a good listener. So that's a really important skill in the work that we do. So talking about feelings, um, so... Feelings are, are interesting because the fight or flight comes, is housed in the, the oldest part of the brain. And the, our feeling center is, comes in the limbic brain. And, and most feelings are associated in some way with our bonding patterns and with our interactions with others. And, um, you know, depending on what you do, you know, if you're trained to be a soldier or if you're trained to be a lawyer or you're doing transactional work in the business world, having feelings are, are not necessarily very helpful. So we can get trained out of noticing our feelings. And I would say that a lot of the people that I work with, particularly in the business world, have a hard time sometimes allowing feelings to be part of their experience. The other side of that are people for whom feelings are are themselves the problem. And I'm thinking now about one of my brothers who's a very passionate, beautiful person, but his feelings just tend to hijack him. If he's feeling angry, they they sort of take his attention. If he's feeling down, that takes his attention. And so it's wonderful to be around his passion, but sometimes I feel like he and others of us dwell in feelings, and that can be a problem too. So not feeling or feeling too much tend to be the two side. So the question is, how do we work with this really strong experience of feeling in a way that makes use of them and doesn't allow them to hijack or override our experience? So uh, what is important about feeling? So I, I often ask people, well, think about going to a movie. You know, if you go to a movie that has different moods and helps you connect to your feeling center and gives you different state experiences and you have different emotions flow through, it's, it's often a much more satisfying experience than one that doesn't. And the same is true in our lives. Feelings connected, connect us to each other. They communicate really rapidly and help us to bond. Um, they give texture and color to our experience. They give deeper meaning to things when we're moved. It's a feeling state. When we're touched, it's a feeling state. And lots of times feelings can really also be, um, you know, there can be information in our feelings. You know, if we start noticing ourselves feeling suspicious or we feel doubt set in or we're suddenly um, 
anxious and suddenly want to get up and move. There's a lot of information. So the the way to work with feelings is similar to how we work with fight or flight, which is to allow for them, to recognize them, and to name them. So it's really helpful to be able to name what we're feeling. Lots of my clients, and I don't know how this is for you, Wanda, but you ask, what are you feeling? The first response is, I'm not. And then if you stick with that and say, but what are you feeling? Yeah, is that your experience that people say, I'm not feeling anything? A lot of the time. They often say, I'm not feeling anything, or they get very rudimentary state. Well, I guess it comes back to whether they learn to suppress the feelings or whether they're swamped by the feelings. I get two different responses on those. But I don't find people have really good words to even begin to describe. It's like they no, have a No, sad, mad, and glad. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's it. Sad, mad, and glad. Yeah, so actually, if you go online these days, I'm um, just speaking to your listeners, if you go online, there are literally lists of feeling states to help people start to be able to name feelings with more nuance. Because if I can say, I'm happy, that's one experience. But if I say, I'm joyful, or I'm um, ecstatic, or I'm thrilled, or, I mean, the more language that we can use with feelings, the more it helps us bring them into being almost, to be able to work with them and then to be able to let them go, which is the other trick. So the first side is acknowledging and the second side is relinquishing, letting go of them instead of clinging to them. All right, so now we need instruction because I believe I can get people, in fact, I can get myself to the point where I can recognize it and then I get myself to the point where I can actually name it. Ooh, but this let go thing, that didn't work so well. How do you guide people to that? Okay, so I think in the Zen of You and Me, there's a chapter on feeling that I think there's a seven-step process for working with strong emotional states. Mm-hmm. So I'll just take you through that somewhat quickly. Okay. So the first thing is to recognize that you're feeling a lot, let's say, or that you're not and you feel like you should be. So I literally take myself off. Let's say, let's say I'm upset with my husband over something, and I know that if I go talk to him now, I'm going to make him feel like he's bad and wrong, and that's not going to help anything. So I take myself off for a minute, sit down, notice the rushing thought. Usually there's a ton of judgment in the mind, and usually I'm thinking about the other person. So I'm just going to, for a moment, move my attention from the content of my mind into my body. And I'm going to notice what it is I'm actually sensing. And I'll notice that the feelings are jumping and they're a little chaotic and that I'm feeling a little discombobulated. So I'm going to use a little bit of that same technique with the breath. And then notice the feelings start to settle a little bit. And then I'm going to ask myself the question, what am I feeling? I'm feeling angry. And just let myself feel that emotion. It's actually just letting it be what it is. We tend to feel bad often about our feelings, and we shouldn't because they're tremendous. They're so interesting. Feeling angry. Now that I have that calmness in my body, I've identified the feeling now. What is right about this anger? What is right about it? And I noticed, well, it's important to me that we keep our agreements. And I notice that when I ask myself what's right, my mind is now working differently than it was when I first sat down and I was captured by the feeling. So by slowing down, recognizing it, letting it be in the body, 
using the breath, then when I start to think about it again, I'm thinking differently. And that's the big key. As soon as I start thinking differently, it's much easier to let it go, Wanda. Because as long as I'm blaming him for it, it's going to continue. But as soon as I sort of calm down and think, well, it's important to me that we keep our agreements, it changes everything. And then I can let go of the anger. And if it's important for me to express it, then I will. I would like to see that we do this together. It's a completely different experience. But it takes that five, ten minutes of sitting down and letting yourself work with the feeling state. You can do it with jealousy. You can do it with um, anxiety. You can do it with vulnerability. It's a very powerful practice to work with our feelings in this way. Wow. Is that too much? <laughs> I, that I've heard, heard so this in so many different ways, but you ask a question in that that I think is really powerful. So I need to recognize it. So I need to be tuned to the sensation in my body and know that this mm-hmm. thing is happening. And then mm-hmm. I need to step away, go away, have mm-hmm. off to myself and mm-hmm. noticing all the rushing thoughts that come flooding into my head. And usually those have a lot of blame and a lot of attachment and a whole bunch of stuff. And instead, I want to move from that notion of my head content into the physical sensations in my body. And yes. I use my breath at that moment. Yes. And that's what brings calmness. Love yes. this. And then I can But you say, don't try to I... get rid of the feeling. You don't yeah, try nothing. to get rid of the feeling. You let it be there. Yes, good. Yeah, let the, let the feeling be. Okay. And then I say to myself, what is it that I am really feeling? And I name it. Mm-hmm. And then exactly. I say, what's right about that one? And it's that question that's new to me. What's right about that feeling? Because you're right. The mm-hmm. forces our brain into completely different kind of logical analysis. And it doesn't have to go in defensive mode. Um, mm-hmm. Or any other thing. Mm-hmm. It really transforms it, you yeah. know, because in a way, I think part of our big struggle is that we don't want to feel the negative feelings, mm-hmm. and we we judge ourselves for having them, when in fact they're a tremendous source of energy and information. But we have to relate. We have to take responsibility for them and not just act them out. Yeah. So that process is spelled out in the book. If people want to pick up a copy of it, it, there's really specific instructions in there to help you with it. It's called the transmutation of emotion. It's a practice. Transmutation of emotion. Okay. And that's in the Zen of you and me. Correct. Okay. Fabulous. I'm going to go be reading that book. I promise you tonight. Right now, I'm going to go read that chapter again. (laughs) Straight through. All the way through. All right. So... Let's now turn to this whole notion of there is conflict, there is real disagreement, there's real tension. Mm-hmm. We've talked a lot about what I do for myself. What do mm-hmm. I do in the conversation now with the other? How do I begin to script, think through, work through that, make it work? Well, I would say the the keys, the, here are the keys. So the first one, again, it's always recognition. We have to recognize the, that there is a conflict. So the first one is recognition. And the second one, and this is really important, usually when we're in some sort of a conflict, we tend to to run very quickly to problem solving. And I know this because being in mediation, of course, we're there to solve a problem. But what I've also learned is that if we go to problem solving too quickly and we don't give enough time to actually talk about the conflict, 
in, in Fisher and Uri's book, they talk about identifying people's wants and needs. You know, what is it people, what are people really wanting and needing? Why are we conflicting? Because there's something we want and need. Well, what are your wants and needs? What are my wants and needs? So if we give time to actually not quickly moving to problem solving, but actually giving each other an opportunity to speak, to really use our listening skills, and to identify what the underlying interests are, then when we move to problem solving, it happens really quickly. So I would say, I would say recognizing the conflict, having a real conversation with lots of listening around what people are wanting and needing, and then moving to problem solving. What ideas do we have about how this problem can be solved? And if you create that space in the middle for genuine inquiry, genuine attention to one another, then by the time you get to problem solving, it just goes really, really fast. So that would be my main advice around dealing with conflict. Okay. All right. So now easier said than done. Absolutely easier said than done, mostly because of the body. It's mostly the body. If we can calm that agitated and excited nervous system, and if we can sort of relieve, if you will, the feelings of threat, then things just go so much easier. So when I'm working with people, that's the first thing I attend to is taking care of the body so that we can remove the threat in the room. I used to be a a horse trainer when I was young, and it was the same thing with a horse. If a horse was agitated, stirred up, overly excited, you couldn't do anything. The first thing that has to happen is that the you have to create a situation in which the horse can calm down, then you make genuine contact with the horse, and then you can train. Then, you, in, in this case, then you can solve problems. I think the biggest weakness we have with how we work with conflict is we don't deal with the body first, the relationship next, and the problem as the last thing. I love that. The body first, the relationship second, and then the solution, the problem. Yes. Absolutely. And Fisher and Yuri say, you know, face the problem, not the people. So face the people just to establish the relationship and to get at the wants and needs and then turn and face the problem. Now what do we do? Because if the threat is missing, people will cooperate and collaborate and problem solve much more easily. Okay. All right, so I can imagine I can get my body calmed. But what Mm -hmm. am I supposed to do about the other person sitting across the table from me who hasn't taken your course and isn't willing to and still thinks that I'm the idiot in this case? (laughs) Well, I'll tell you a simple, simple, really, really simple trick is to say, I see that this is really important to you, that you really care about this. I would really like to be able to listen to what you think. And then when they finish talking, then do exactly what you've done with me today, which is just reflect back what you've heard. And in that reflection, you literally will help calm them. And then when you're done with that, you could say, now, what would really be helpful? Would you be willing to listen to me for just a minute? That moment of of giving them an experience, you've heard them. And then now, can I have five minutes to tell you what I think? And you can literally, like get their agreement to listen to you. So listening skills has, have tremendous impact. It's one of the reasons that they, they get taught, you know, now in law schools and places like that because they really, they really have an enormous effect on people's level of calm, which is yeah. nice because you've been doing that on the call as I've been talking today. 
Yeah, well, I think it's part and parcel of practice. But at any rate, that's has that. <laughs> there's a long story for why I've learned to do this skill, but that one will be another day. Um, I see now why you say it's so important to take care of the body first, to calm that agitated nervous system, because I can't listen if I'm still agitated. I'm still in my head running, you know, reacting to everything the person says when I'm supposed to be listening. And you can't suspend that story if you haven't calmed your own nervous system first. Yes, that's right. And the the nervous system can be trained. I mean, this is one of the reasons that a meditation practice is really, really helpful. And I think people naturally meditate in lots of different situations without knowing that's what they're doing. I mean, it could be when you're settling down into a nice long bath at the end of the day. It could be you're taking a nice long drive and you're just looking at the scenery and all of a sudden all that thinking, that cognizing, that language in the mind, that mind that's jumping around from subject to subject to subject, that suddenly calms down and your senses open up and your nervous system relaxes. And everybody has that experience. They may may not do it formally in sitting meditation, but every night when we go into deep sleep, we basically are in a meditative state where the mind is quiet. We're not thinking. So that is... that. And it's really, uh, it's really can be trained. That's my point. It's like going to the gym. You can train your mind to move from language and thinking into what we call the experiencing network, where your senses are wide open, your nervous system's calm, you're noticing the sounds, you're seeing the colors in the room, you notice your body. Suddenly, that mentizing is not where our attention is. And it's literally like a network that you can flip a switch when you have enough practice. So that's why well, I teach meditation and why I think it's such an important practice, at least for me. Okay, that makes sense to me. I don't think that, and I guess I am renewed by this in having just recently read this book, The Untethered Soul. This has been the first four or five chapters talking about, do you realize how much your mind is going on? It just never shuts up, but we are so used to it. We don't even realize how much energy it's taking up in there and how little we notice in the process. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. So I've gone through the work of calming my body, and we talked about that earlier, about taking yourself off, about using your breath, about noticing mm-hmm. what you're feeling and naming it, and about asking mm-hmm. what's right about the feeling that you have. So all of that is ways, and then the whole meditation practice are all ways of calming the nervous system and tuning to the sensory side of experience, not to that mm-hmm. cognitive thought word mm-hmm. side of experience. Right. Yes. Okay, so if I've that's done not where that, calm, it, calm doesn't come from there. You know, we go to our mind to calm us down, but that, that isn't, the, it's, it's the whole body that needs calming. That, that, the prefrontal cortex doesn't do that function. That's not what it does. Does that make sense? It does make sense. I don't think we think about it that way, but that is exactly what happens, that the prefrontal, cor- prefrontal cortex does not calm. In fact, it goes the opposite. Okay. All right, so then I'm going to sit down and say, in effect, to someone else, I want to talk. And we have to find an appropriate way to say that. I see this is mm-hmm. important, or perhaps I want to talk about this, it's important to me, or there's a lot at stake here, we can come yeah. to a resolution, it's anything. Mm-hmm. And then I invite the other person to listen. Okay, well, now, will you invite them to speak or them first. them to talk so that I'm so listening. How do, you, Sorry. how do you see it? 
it's always great to say, this is really important. I'd love to talk about it. How do you see it? Yeah. You know, let the other person speak first. Okay. All right. So any advice, I know we teach listening, and we always say the same words, but I find two people are really bad at it. How do we get better yeah. at listening? Well, I think we get better at listening when we start seeing how much we like being listened to <laughs> and how wonderful it is when someone actually hears us and reflects what we've said, and then we seem to want to be able to do that for others. And then when we start doing that for others, we're kind of amazed at how much we learn. It's really kind of an amazing thing. We like to be listened to, and we learn a lot when we listen. And then it just becomes a skill that we want to cultivate. But I agree with you. We think we're listening, but we're, all, we're usually listen, half listening and half thinking at the yeah. same time. Yeah, I, and we're right back to having calmed that nervous system so that the mind is not chattering away at you while you're supposed to be listening. That's the hard thing. Mm-hmm. Getting yes. rid of the distractions, mm-hmm. okay? Mm-hmm. All right, and then I want to invite the other person to listen to me. So would you be willing mm-hmm. to hear me? What if they say no? Um, if they say no, that's some really good information. Because if <laughs> You know, depending on your relationship, if someone says no, then it's good to know because if you're working on a project together or some collaboration and someone's not willing to listen, that says a lot about the relationship. So probably I would say, well, I think that's important. You know, I probably am not going to be able to keep doing this if you aren't interested in hearing what I have to say. So I like I would like it if someone said that to me because it would clear things up. <laughs> Okay, again, we're coming back to using that emotion that's expressed in that moment in some ways mm-hmm. as information. Yes, exactly. Yeah, so, and, and then, you know, there could be a follow-up question. So it could be, let's if you and I role-played it for a minute, let's say I say, okay, Wanda, um, you know, this project we're working on is really valuable and there's tension between us. You know, I'd love to talk about it. How do you see it? And mm-hmm. then you could speak for a minute and I could reflect and then I would say to you, are you willing to listen to my perspective for just a minute? And then if you say no to me, I would say, is there anything I can do that would interest you in hearing? Is there anything I could do differently? And if not, then it might be like, well, maybe we need to not be doing this. (laughs) All right, Diane, I love how this is going. I just want to underscore what everybody has said, too, about listening. The way that other people feel listened to is when you reflect back what you've heard from them, not necessarily verbatim, but in some form. And, Diane, Mm -hmm. sadly, we're out of time. So I have to thank you for being our guest today. It's Diane Musho-Hamilton. The book we've been talking about is The Zen of You and Me. And, Diane, what a fabulous discussion so much to cover here. The thing I take away from this is listening after you've calmed your body with your breath and tuning into the sensations to ask what is right about what I'm feeling. That's just such a critical question. Thank you very much. Yeah. Okay. Thank you, Wanda. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. And join us next week for another episode in getting out of your comfort zone. Thank you for joining us today. Tune in for another edition next week with Dr. Wanda Wallace on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week.